This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment's all about good debt versus bad debt. And you might be a little bit surprised that there's actually something called good debt these days. But what makes it good or bad? Well, it kind of depends. And that's why Blair Manton, who's a BC licensed insolvency trustee, is going to explain to us how you might categorize and prioritize your debts and where you can get help in managing your debt repayment. So Blair, what would you say is the key factor on whether a debt be, could be considered good or bad? Well, thank you, Elaine. And it really is a case where, you know, debt, I've often heard it said that debt is like fire. It's a useful servant, but it's a lethal master. And it's the challenge is so often we see clients where debt has become the master and is dictating their lives. But it's not in every situation does debt become a problem. And it's not that every type of debt is bad and needs to be avoided at all costs. Because the reality is that without using credit, some things just aren't going to be attainable for most of us. Um, You know, usually if a debt is taken on with the expectation of a significant future benefit. It's a way of investing for the long run. That's a typical hallmark of what you might consider to be good debt. And some examples of those, I think none of these will be a surprise, uh, you know, buying a home. So typically very few people, especially with the run-up in real estate prices, are able to pay cash for a home, um, but they go into debt, they get a mortgage with the hope that you're going to eventually build equity over time and you're also putting a roof over your head. So instead of paying rent, you're paying down a mortgage. So in many cases, um, you know, a mortgage mortgage is considered good debt. Um, paying for education costs is another example, potentially a very good debt, because the idea is you're investing in yourself, you're going to increase your future earning capacity. So the whole idea is that this isn't money that's, you know, spent with no future benefit. The idea is this is money you're investing, you're putting away investing in yourself, uh, and that it's going to pay dividends in the future. You know, a final example here is the idea of starting your own business. Uh, a lot of the times to get a, a business off the ground, you have to go into debt. Um, if the business ends up being very successful in the future, you know, that's a good example of a type of good debt. Now, on the other side, in terms of what's considered bad debt, you know, it's basically the opposite of what I've been talking about in terms of a long-term benefit and investment. You know, the type of bad debt that tends to tends to really hurt people is the things that you've just used for fast consumption um, to make ends meet. You know, oftentimes there's just a short-term benefit or the thing that you're going into debt to purchase is not an asset that's going to appreciate over time. It's going to do the opposite. It's going to decline in value over time. Uh, the biggest example of that is vehicle finance. Financing. So it's not the case that every vehicle loan is bad, but there can be a lot of hallmarks of very poor, poorly structured vehicle loans. And one thing to take off off the top right away is that essentially no vehicle is going to go up in value after you purchase it. You know, sure there are some classic cars, but probably not what we're talking about here. But if you purchase a new vehicle, you know, as soon as you drive it off the lot, there's you know pick pick a number, 15, 20% depreciation right there. So it's often the case that you end up owing far more 
than what that vehicle is worth for about the term of the loan. And then what can really be tough too um, is it's almost been this, you know, this slow motion move towards in the last 20 years of longer and longer vehicle financing terms. So, you know, it, back when I was, you know, 16 years old, which was quite some time ago, it was three or four years typical of car payments. That was it. Now it's six, seven, eight, even longer than that. And yes, vehicles are lasting, but the vehicle at the end of eight years will be very depreciated in value. You probably still have a car payment. That can be a sort of bad debt that can really put you behind. And, and the last thing is just, you know, the idea of consumables that are bought on credit. So if you're having to put your household goods, your regular purchases, things like groceries on a credit card, you know, obviously it's good that you're making your ends meet and meeting your necessities. But the bad thing is the cost of that is just going to continue to escalate as you get hit with interest costs every month. So the other thing I was thinking about is not everybody, though we may want something or need something, but not always can we afford to do it. So that, so I'm thinking that there's another piece that we need to really look at or that a person needs to look at too. Well, exactly so, Elaine, because, you know, we started off by saying, hey, there's a couple examples of good debt. You know, I gave a mortgage and a student loan, but, you know, very quickly, those can become bad debt if they're not managed appropriately. You know, a mortgage can be a huge problem if you've borrowed too much or you haven't, you know, stress tested your finances to deal with the increasing interest rates which have become a reality right now so the mortgage rather than being a source of salvation and you're building equity you could be in a situation where the interest rates are higher now the mortgage is too high and you might have to sell that house at a loss so that's a definition of bad debt if you have to sell a house at a loss and be on the hook uh, for what the mortgage holder won't get paid back um, you know even student loans as well um, you know that can be bad debt as well if you're you know you're going to school you're spending costs but if you don't complete the program or if you haven't really looked into the nuts and bolts, all the details about your earning potential and how long it's going to take you to pay down that debt before you incur it. You know, student loan debt can be a very bad debt as well. If you're getting no benefit from the education, but you have tens of thousands of dollars of debt that is going to be required to be paid back. Okay. So before we continue on talking about I don't know, uh, considerations, things you should pay attention to uh, before using credit. I want to remind everyone that if you know already that you're in a situation where you need some assistance, the number to get a hold of Blair and Sands and Associates in general, a wonderful company that's all over the province, here's the phone number. It's 1-800-661-3030. So what are the considerations or tips that you'd recommend for folks, Blair, when it comes to using credit? Well, you want to assess the pros and the cons of each transaction when you decide whether to use credit or not. And again, there are some advantages to using credit. So you know, the number one advantage to using credit is you don't need to wait to save up the cash needed for your major goals. And as we talked about, you know, buying a home or financing a post-secondary education, that's typically something that you're not going to have the money saved up ahead of time. So in those situations, there might be a lot of pros to, to going into debt because you're actually going to be able to get that asset or get that education. Uh, in some cases when you're using credit there can be perks or rewards on your day-to-day -day purchases if you were going to buy something anyway and if you put it on the credit card you get some points for it well you know that could be an advantage but obviously when we talk about this a lot on the show you've got to not be swayed um, by the inflated value sometimes of those rewards programs if you have to carry a balance even a single month you've already eclipsed any of that value of the reward spent there so do be a bit careful uh, and then finally using credit um, you know it's something that's going to help you build a positive credit history so in the future if you do need to borrow if you need to get that mortgage or get a credit card you can qualify at better rates or even best rates if you've got a really good uh, history of using credit response and, and paying it back. Uh, 
Now, of course, on the other side, on the downside, the cons to using credit, well, first off, it costs you money. Uh, so every time that you borrow money, you have to pay back a higher amount than you've borrowed or else it wouldn't be worth the lender's time. And those are typically your interest charges. So when you think about credit card interest, that increases the true cost of purchases if you don't pay something off in full right away. We did an analysis a few years ago of, you know, Christmas presents bought on credit and you might think you're getting a wonderful deal, you know, shopping the Black Friday sale. But if you have to carry that balance for three, four, six months on your credit card, uh, you're not getting any sort of a deal at all. So you really do have to make sure you've you've assessed the full cost of a purchase that you're going to make. And then the idea of being stuck in debt repayment. So quite often when people are in debt, the benefit of what they went into debt for, especially if it's the bad debt that we've talked about, the consumption or just making ends meet each month, you know, that benefit is gone. But every month it's taking money away from yourself now and in the future it will continue to do so. So you're paying current dollars to deal with past spending, which might not be giving you any, any current benefit at this time. So you definitely want to take a minute to make sure you've evaluated the risks and the benefits before you incur credit. And there are certain habits that you might want to put in place that can help you just to make sure that if you do incur credit, it's going to be manageable and not get out of control. Um, a couple quick things, um, you know, one is to keep your borrowing limits low. So just because the bank says, you know, you're approved for 10 or 20 or $30,000, whatever it might be, doesn't mean you have to accept that. And sometimes having that temptation of a whole lot of available credit credit, um, that can cause people to make decisions they might not already make, and sometimes even get a false sense of security and saying, well, if the bank thinks that I'm good for it, I must be good for it. They must know something, you know, they're watching behind the scenes. They're not watching behind the scenes. So you've got to be your own arbiter of your financial health. Um, so definitely keeping limits low can be good. And then be careful what, what transactions you do use credit for, because not all transactions have an interest-free grace period. So if you're using cash advances or making lottery ticket purchases, you're immediately incurring, incurring interest charges from the day that you make that transaction. So you definitely would want to think twice about that. And then finally, it's always a best practice to just pay as much as you can if you do have a credit balance. Uh, definitely more than the minimum because the minimum payment is going to keep you trapped in debt for a very, very long time, even on a relatively small balance. Now, I, I know that you've got a really good list for folks to pay attention to of things to watch for or signs w to show you if you're not already conscious and aware of it, that you are headed towards a bigger problem or a bigger trouble than you currently have. Can we spend the last bit of this segment talking about those? Because it may come, some of them may come as a surprise to someone. Yeah, I think that that's very good for our listeners to hear that because in some cases you might hear all of these say, oh, maybe one of them, you know, it ticks the box a little bit, but it, okay, I'm going to think about it, but I'm okay. Uh, someone might hear it and say, hey, I'm ticking four or five of these off. I didn't realize it, uh, but you know, maybe it is time for me to have a conversation. Uh, so a couple things are so right off the top. If you're avoiding the fact, the problem, avoiding the facts, avoiding your account balances, not opening your bill statements, um, not dealing with your creditors if they call you, that's a big warning sign. And probably, you know, that you wouldn't be avoiding if it was really good good news. Um, the second one is really just, it's different for everybody, but I don't know anybody who is unaffected by finding themselves unable to pay their debt. So many people feel overwhelmed. They feel anxious, stressed, worried about the debts or what creditors might be able to do if they're not able to pay. So there's a really simple adage, and I think it's very true. If you feel like you have a debt problem, odds are that you probably do. And it's time for you to have that conversation if you're starting to feel that anxiety and that worry. Um, sometimes there's some just hallmarks of what we would call a high risk 
debt situation. And these are things like you're using payday loans or other, they're called fast cash or even installment loans. These are often the lender of last resort. It's where you can't go, where you go if you can't get approved anywhere else. And where they make up for their risk is they charge huge fees. So payday loans can be up to almost 500% of annual interest, uh, even installment loans, consolidation loans. I've seen them in the high 40% per year, uh, which to me, it's just a ticking time bomb at that point. If you consolidate your debt, you can't afford to pay an extra 40% a year on that. Um, so you really need to make sure if you're any of those high risk categories, you are reaching out for help. Uh, and then finally, just looking at your budget and seeing even if you are making all your debt payments and the credit score is okay, because you're keeping up on minimums, is that sustainable with your budget? Is that too much of your income that's going to pay off debt? And it's really compromising what you and your family can do in the present. And this is the part where I just want to talk about Sands and Associates for a moment. Um, the things that I know that are true about the company, just because we've talked to so many folks who work uh, w within the, the company uh, over the years of doing the show, that these people are not only incredibly intelligent and uh, experienced in handling and dealing and working with folks that have uh, a debt problem, uh, but there's a whole... Um, list of, of things that they'll work with you on, as well as to ensure that you don't get in this tr uh, position again, which is why I want to tell you, Sands & Associates, you can go to their website and check them out, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call. They have offices all over British Columbia now. It's 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. This segment is all about the top things, the top questions that debt experts answer. And this is part one of part two. And the other interesting part of this segment, it's all the things that the debt experts wish that we knew as consumers. Like I say, segment has two parts. So if you don't hear your question uh, in the first part, you'll probably hear it in the second, in the second part. So Blair, uh, you and your team talk with people every day who are looking for answers about managing personal debt. What are the most common or some of the most common questions that you get asked? Yeah, there are so many, Elaine, and that's what's so gratifying uh, being in the role that I'm in is just being able to give people good information that they're not always able to find from other sources that can help them to make better decisions for themselves, their financial future, and for their family. So one of the most important questions we get asked, and this is usually one where people have made an assumption, they think they know the answer, but just about every case where I've told someone, they'd be like, oh, my answer was the opposite. I'm happy you told me the truth. And that is, am I responsible for my spouse's debt? And we've all heard, you know, you marry someone, you marry their debt, married couples have to share all debts equally. Uh, that is all completely false. So the short answer here is no, you are not personally responsible for repaying the debts of your spouse, partner, or any other family member, just because you're related, married, because you're living together, or even if someone passes on. So I sometimes get calls uh, from worried children who have just suffered, you know, the extreme loss of a parent, and they're worried, in addition to all of this grief, am I going to have to inherit their debt as well? And the answer is no, you do not inherit debt, you don't marry debt. Uh, it's a common misconception, again, that spouses become legally obligated to once a to each other's creditors once they're married. Um, but the only way responsibility for spousal debt can be triggered is upon divorce or separation. There can be debts that's deemed family debt under the BC Family Law Act, but that's upon the dissolution of the relationship. So if people are married, the relationship is going well, one person has some debt and the other person uh, is not listed on that debt, there's nothing that makes the non 
debt owing per partner responsible for the other person's debt. Now, the way that can be frustrated or, or changed is if you do decide to get something together. So if you co-sign or you co-borrow on some accounts together, or maybe you just got married and you're meeting with the bank and they said, oh yeah, why don't we put both names on all these credit accounts just to make it more simple? Um, you'd really want to give that some serious thought because as soon as both of your names are on the account, well, of course, at that point, it's a joint debt and you're both responsible. But if it is the case that each partner has brought in different debts to the relationship, they remain their separate debts. And even during the relationship, if one partner gets a credit card, it's in their own name, and they have a debt that they're not able to, to pay, the other spouse, partner, family member, or whatever can never be held responsible for that balance. So it's so important to be aware of what you owe and what you don't owe. And it's also doubly important if you are someone that has co-signed a debt for somebody else. You know, in general, if you're contemplating co-signing, we say it's all almost never a good idea. So please definitely think twice and be aware that if you do co-sign a debt, it's a joint and several responsibility, which means it's not a 50-50 split. If it's a thousand dollars, the person doesn't pay, you're on the hook for 500. No, you're on the hook for the full amount of the debt. And that can hurt your credit report if the person doesn't pay. Sometimes there's even acceleration clauses in certain debts that if the person, the original debtor has missed a few payments, it's not the case the co-signer will just take over those payments and keep the same terms. That whole debt might be Become due and payable. So definitely think long and hard before you co-sign, but you should feel some relief if you're worried that you're marrying someone's debt or have done so, or you'll be held on the, on the account for a family member's debt. That just can't happen, doesn't happen, will not happen. So interesting because co-signing is such a, a gift for people, right? Like it's a show of support often. I will help you do this. They're, you know, working their way out of something or into something great. Uh, and it can just go so badly so quickly. And it's, just so unfortunate that it's sort of structured this way. At least that's my that's my thoughts about it. Yeah, sometimes no good deed goes unrewarded. You think oh. you're doing a good deed by co-signing, but I've just seen so many times where it comes back to bite. And then, you know, it, aside from all the financial, you've now got an emotional dimension to this debt where it's something to owe, you know, Bank of Montreal or whoever some money. They're a faithless, faceless corporation. You owe your mom or your dad, brother, sister, someone that you know needs that money. That's a challenge. And that's an extra level of emotion that you just don't need to do that with your money. Exactly. I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. What about um, old unpaid debts? Do they ever expire, Blair? Well, that's an interesting one, Elaine, because the answer is yes and no. So do debts ever expire? Well, theoretically, no. But there is a period of time, a statute of limitations, where essentially any power that a creditor is going to have against you, um, there is a bit of a ticking time clock there that if they don't take action against you within a certain period of time, um, they lose the right to ever take that action. So what happens in BC is there's an act called the BC Limitation Act, and it limits the length of time a creditor has to sue you for a debt owing. Now, if you owe somebody money, they can call you, they can harass you, threaten to take you to court, so on and so forth. But until they've actually sued you and taken you to court, they can't start to seize anything from you. So what the Limitations Act says, well, they can't threaten you with court for the next 10 or 20 years and you live under this sort of Damocles for the rest of your life. No, what they have to do is within the next two years, and it's two years from the date that you incurred the debt or the date you last made a payment on the debt, or the date you last gave a written acknowledgement that you know you owe this money and an email would count, that starts a two-year clock running. And in many, many cases, creditors are going to threaten all that time. They're going to take legal action against you. But in many cases, that two-year clock will expire and then they lose the right to ever sue you for the debt. 
So a couple of caveats here. So, you know, first off, if you're someone that never needs credit again in the future, well, this might be an okay scenario because what's going to happen is that even though they can't sue you, you can bet they're still going to try to collect. They're going to put negative stories on your credit, you know, for as long as they, they possibly can just to have some impact against you. Uh, the other big caveat is this does not work at all for any debt owing to a government body. So there's not a statute of limitations on your student loan, not for ICBC debt and not for income taxes or anything like that. Those can all be dealt with with a licensed insolvency trustee, but you can't just wait out the government. Um, they can wait longer than you and they wrote the laws themselves. So definitely uh, they're able to keep themselves outside of that. So it's important to know, again, you can restructure government debt, but if you're looking to just, you know, wait out the limitations period, it's two years for general unsecured consumer debts. Okay. We're going to talk about bankruptcy next, but I just want to throw in the phone number for Sands & Associates. They have offices all over British Columbia now. The number to get a hold of one of those offices is 1-800-661-3030. Also, check out their website. If you're thinking you've got a question that hasn't been answered yet, remember this is a two-part series or two-part uh, section that we're talking about here, uh, check out the website, sands-trustee.com. So with bankruptcy, Blair, can you talk about some of the, the frequently asked questions about bankruptcy that folks have? Yes, certainly. And in a nutshell, you know, bankruptcy is not as bad as people think. I've rarely had somebody in my office who didn't have some, you know, in, incredibly in, inflated idea of how terrible a bankruptcy process was going to be. And, you know, not sugarcoating it. It's a serious legal proceeding, um, but it's not near as bad as most people think. So let, let's go through some of the, the basic questions here. So we're often asked, you know, what debts will bankruptcy cover? And I sometimes have people in my office tell me about everything. It's just as they're reaching for the door on the way out. They're like, oh, and I also have this government debt but I know you guys can't help with that. So both bankruptcy and consumer proposals can cover almost everything. So from credit cards to outstanding income tax, student loans, serve overpayments, GST debt, you know, just about any debt that you can incur, you have the ability um, to restructure by working with a trustee. It's a very short list of debts that you couldn't compromise. And they're the typical debts that you would, ne would not necessarily want to. Things like child support, alimony, spousal support, those types of things couldn't be reduced. But a lot of the times, if we're able to help somebody reduce all of the other debts, they're just in that much better of a position to meet their family support obligations as well. So that, that's a big first question. You know, another question is based on an assumption is people think, well, if you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. And, you know, how does that work? So people ask, will I be allowed to keep some assets if I declare bankruptcy? And the answer is absolutely. Most people actually keep all of their assets and they're in a better position to retain their assets in bankruptcy because they have the protection of they're no longer able to be sued and have things taken from them. So what happens in the province of BC and in every province across Canada, the government has set out a base level of exemptions and said if someone goes into bankruptcy, the whole point is financial rehabilitation and they're going to need some base level of assets to reestablish themselves, to move forward. You would never take you know the workman's tools away if you expect them to earn income in the future. So there's a wide list of exemptions, household furniture, a vehicle, even a certain amount of home equity, all of your RRSPs, all of your pension funds. Nobody loses any of those things if they file a bankruptcy. So you definitely want to check any of your assumptions with a trustee if you're worried about getting help for your debt because you'd have to surrender some assets. You know, certainly there are some assets that could be surrendered. You know, if you've got a bunch of Bitcoin that well exceeds the amount of your debt and maybe six months ago it was worth a whole lot more, I'm going to be telling you to liquidate that Bitcoin. But for the most part, part, uh, people who come to us don't have a whole lot of free and clear assets and what they do have are considered completely exempt assets. 
And uh, what is, how much does it cost to declare bankruptcy? That's another question, too. A lot of people think, you know, the government pays or bankruptcy is a free service. It costs some money. So the person who's filing bankruptcy, they no longer make any payments to their creditors. And the cost of bankruptcy is dependent on their monthly income. The vast majority of people who file bankruptcy are considered low income. And the cost of a low income bankruptcy over a nine month period is two thousand three hundred dollars. So most people make monthly payments over the nine months, you know, in and around between two and three hundred dollars per month. And the trustee handles the entire administration. The bankruptcy helps them discharge all of the debts. And quite often, folks have been paying so much on minimum payments for so long that the bankruptcy payment is significantly below what they've been struggling to do for a long time. And as we close out this part, part one of this, uh, is there anything else you wish people either knew or were better understood? when it comes to the debt. Yeah, that the number one thing, Elaine, is the whole idea of your credit rating and the impact and the idea that this is going to be permanent. It is not a permanent stain on your credit to declare bankruptcy. Bankruptcy drops off your credit six years from the day you finish it, and the vast majority of bankruptcies are done in nine months. So as soon as nine months from the day that you sign the documents with the trustee, uh, the clock starts ticking. And during that six years when a bankruptcy is on your record, you can start to rebuild your credit, incur new credit, put a lot of positive stories on that report. And we've seen people as little as two to three years after bankruptcy get credit cards at no prefer, sorry, no enhanced rates, you know, at the, at the best rates that other customers would get, be qualified for mortgages, for car loans. It's as little as a two to three year horizon, which is often a whole lot faster than if you hunkered down, tried to pay everything off in full to preserve that perfect credit rating. Taking the short term hit in the bankruptcy and rebuilding after can be just a wonderful strategy for a lot of folks to get things back on track. I want to mention the phone number for Sands and Associates offices all over British Columbia. It's a 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. I want to also include the website. If you haven't had a chance to take a look at that and you've still got more questions and you're not quite ready to make the phone call, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. And you can also uh, facilitate making an appointment through the website as well. It's, it's a terrific one. It's just filled with good questions and really understandable answers. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. This is part two of our series on top frequently asked questions that debt experts answer and what they wish that we that we would know already before we come to them. So, Blair, can you start by sharing another one of the most common questions that you and your team at Sands and Associates hear from folks who are looking for answers on how they can better manage their personal debt? Sure. One question that we get a lot is, what can I do to deal with my debt without impacting my credit score, my credit history, my credit report? And I can understand what's behind this question, but the challenge is there's really not much. Any time or any debt strategy that you're going to employ, if you're not going to be able to pay everything back on time, over time with interest, it can have a, a negative impact on your credit. Now, even if you're making all the minimum monthly payments on your credit card account, they'll be kept up to date, but it's going to take you a long time to clear that debt. And even depending on your balance, if it ends up being a pretty high balance, your credit score might get hit just because you're utilizing way too much of your credit balance for way too long. 
Uh, if you decide to apply for a consolidation loan, every time you apply for new financing, that credit check is what's considered a hard hit or a hard check on your credit, and that's going to lower your score as well. Uh, if you choose to restructure your debts by either a consumer proposal um, or a personal bankruptcy, that's going to have a negative impact on your credit for a period of time. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind here is all of these things are temporary. And, you know, the first strategy I talked about, if you just make all the minimum payments, you know, yeah, that could that could ding your credit, maybe the least severe of any, but that could be 10, 20, 40 years of minimum payments, huge amounts paid to interest. And I don't know any financial professional that would say a good credit rating is worth sacrificing decades of your financial future just to, you know, keep all these minimum payments made. So in the short term, if you need to restructure your debt, you have to accept that there will be some negative impacts to your credit report, but it's nothing that you can't recover from probably quicker than you think. And most people, even coming out of a bankruptcy, are so much better credit risks than they were before because they have no debt. They're going to take everything pretty seriously going forward, having just come through a legal proceeding. Um, so it is the case you'll recover very quickly if you do have to restructure your debts. Okay. Now, can we skip ahead to the question about What's the thing that uh, most licensed insolvency trustees wish that we knew or better understood when it comes to death? Yeah, there's two things. You know, number one is the whole idea of minimum payments. We've all been lulled into this sense of security and your credit rating will validate this, that if you just make the minimum payments, you're doing A-OK and nothing else you need to do. And from the bank's perspective, that's absolutely true. From the consumer's perspective, it is insane how long you will be kept in debt if all you're able to make are the minimum payments on a credit card account. So even a $2,000 balance, which, you know, not many people phone us saying they only owe $2,000, but even a $2,000 balance at a typical 18% interest rate could take you 13 years and 10 months to become debt free. And you will have paid in interest about as much as you originally charged on that card. And the numbers get even more scary as you go up higher, you know, $6,000 can be 40 years of payments. Uh, you know, no one would say that $6,000 is a lifetime of overspending, but it can be a lifetime of repayment if all you're doing is making minimum payments. So I think if people take nothing else away, please understand the minimum payment not designed to get you out of debt, designed to keep you in debt as long as possible and maximize the amount of interest charges that you're going to make. And what do you get out of it? Well, you get a credit rating that's that's not terrible, but you don't have any chance to save money or actually move forward financially. So that one's huge to me. Uh, the second thing most trustees wish people knew more about, and this is you know the joy of, of my life professionally here, is just making people aware of consumer proposals. So the most powerful debt strategy you might never have heard of, and of course, if you listen to this show, you know it inside and out, but if you're just hearing it for the first time, a lot of people come into our offices thinking that bankruptcy is their only option. They're rather despondent about that. Upwards of 85% of people at our firm and across the province of BC choose to avoid bankruptcy by making a settlement offer through a consumer proposal. And how this works is you consolidate all of your debt together, all the interest gets put to zero and a trustee is working with you every step of the way to help you do all of this. And then what you have to pay back is just what you can afford to pay back. It's typically much less than the full amount and it's always with zero interest anyway. But you know, a real consumer pro proposal that we filed recently, someone came into us owing more than $42,000 of debt. They were struggling to make the minimum payments, which were upwards of $1,200 per month. The vast majority of that going to interest and being owed again the next month. We made a consumer proposal 
proposal that could take them from $42,000 of debt down to $18,600. So less than half. And what's the real killer here um, is that their monthly payment, it was upwards of $1,200. It's now $310 per month. And by law, a consumer proposal can only extend to five years maximum. You can pay it off sooner if you're able to, but five years is the longest you'll be paying off a proposal. That $1,200 per month, that could have been decades for this person to actually pay down that debt. So, you know, what a life-changing thing to do in a consumer proposal. And I'm convinced if more people knew about that remedy, fewer people would be suffering under their debt burden than they are right now. Absolutely. And I want to throw in the phone number right now. Sands and Associates has offices all over British Columbia. And the phone number to use to get into one of their offices or have a Zoom with somebody to see what your situation is and see if they can be of help is one 800 661 3030. Also, you can use their website at sands-trustee.com. So let's stay with consumer proposals uh, till the end of this segment, Blair. Can you talk about some of the questions that people ask about the consumer proposal uh, if they're just hearing about it for the first time? What are the things they're most concerned about? Yeah, let's give some really useful facts as quick as we can here in the time. So what debts can you consolidate in a consumer proposal? Well, virtually everything. So virtually all of your consumer debts, credit cards, payday loans, overdraft, government debts like student loans, tax debt, and serb overpayments, just about every debt that you have can be included in a consumer proposal. It's the same eligibility as if you had filed a personal bankruptcy. And most people understand a personal bankruptcy, that's the idea. You get a fresh start and everything gets left behind. Um, same with the proposal you get that fresh start. What's important to know is that you're not forced to automatically give up a house or a car or some other financing you might want to continue with. If you want to keep those assets, whether it's the house or car or whatnot, you can continue to make those payments during a consumer proposal. So it's not the case you have to surrender your assets, give up your house, car, or anything like that. A proposal is in lieu of you essentially throwing your hands up and saying, okay, everybody take what you can. It's you making your own repayment plan with the help of a trustee. Uh, another question we're asked is how much debt can I cut with a consumer proposal? And of course, every situation is a little bit different, but it's quite often it's more than half and it can be as much as 80, even 90% of the total debt outstanding. So it depends on the total amount of debt that's out there and what creditors will accept. But quite often a proposal in the range of 30 cents on the dollar, you know, we do a bunch of them every week and 95% of the time they're accepted on the first offer. 99% of the time, if we negotiate, we still reach a deal. So it's not a slam dunk in every case. But the reason why proposals are almost always accepted is when a proposal is made through a trustee, the creditors see a sheet of paper with two columns. One column shows a hypothetical bankruptcy, and often that's a zero recovery to the creditors. The other column shows here's a proposal. The person wants to work with you. Here's the win-win. And if that's 20 or 30 cents in the dollar, in almost every case, creditors would rather to get something back, even if it's just 20 or 30 cents, rather than being forced to accept nothing back if the person were to file for bankruptcy. Uh, the last point that we're asked often is, well, can I just do this myself? You know, can I just phone the creditors and work out this interest-free arrangement? And is that a consumer proposal? Uh, the short answer and the accurate answer is no, you cannot do a consumer proposal yourself. Only a licensed insolvency trustee can do so. Uh, I definitely encourage people, if you'd like to negotiate individually with your creditors, you know, please go ahead. But I've never seen a bank on in Canada here agree to freeze all of your interest, give you five years and pay them back 30 cents on the dollar. They want that to come through a trustee so that they know everything has been validated and this is possibly the best that they're going to do. Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason why you went to school for all those years, Blair. <laughs> or that's that right. the thousand 
licensed insolvency trustees across the country have done all this education. They are the ones that are going to facilitate this uh, for you. If you want to set up an appointment, 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number. Uh, Sands and Associates has offices all over the province. And if you want to check to their website, sands-trustee.com, you're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. This segment, it's, uh, I don't know, I know somebody who went through bankruptcy, so I, I know it's a bit of a challenge for sure, and um, it's always interesting to be on the other side of it and to watch people be on the other side of it. So that's what we're going to talk about. What happens after doing a personal bankruptcy? Uh, that fresh start, that financial fresh start that Blair talks about all the time, and certainly something that a personal bankruptcy can bring about. Uh, starting anew. So, Blair, can you talk about how personal bankruptcy works to provide that fresh start for folks from unmanageable debt and what to expect after it's over? Well, certainly, Elaine. And obviously, the decision to file for bankruptcy, it's an emotionally fraught decision. You know, you're not in my office because you're having the best day of your life. Um, you know, a lot of the times people would choose anywhere else they could they could possibly be rather than sitting with a licensed insolvency trustee. And a lot of people come, you know, with a lot of stress and anxiety, just coming to the decision to reach out for debt help. And they have certain conceptions of what they think a bankruptcy or a legal solution will mean. And quite often, they think this is a permanent sentence. They think this is, you know, for the rest of their life. This decision is going to follow them around, you know, with the scarlet letter type of thing. And what I want people to understand is that bankruptcy is not a permanent remedy. It's a permanent remedy in terms of the debt gets gets left behind, but it's not a permanent detrimental mark against you. It's something you can recover from. And it's a debt remedy that's available to any Canadian or any person in Canada who finds themselves in a situation where they're just not able to pay their debt. The wording in the law is bankruptcy is for the honest but unfortunate individual that needs their help to restructure um, under the supervision of a licensed insolvency trustee. So when you file for bankruptcy, you get legal protection from your creditors. And by completing a bankruptcy, you get debt forgiveness that leaves all of that debt behind and you get to move forward unburdened by that debt. Um, the advantage to bankruptcy is it's often the quickest and the least expensive means of restructuring your debt compared to other options that exist. And it, bankruptcy can make a whole lot of sense in situations where someone's income is relatively low or it's uncertain, so they can't commit to a consumer proposal repayment plan because they just don't have that ability to predict their income or have some space in their budget. Or the debts might be so significant that even repaying as little as 15 or 20 cents on the dollar, that just might not be affordable. You know, bankruptcy is never the first option, but it's once you've evaluated all of the options and see how they've applied to your unique situation, um, you know, bankruptcy is still a remedy. It's a last resort, but it is a resort that will help you restructure. And it's not going to be the permanent mark against you that a lot of people fear. And I know that you've talked before about there are some beneficial outcomes to personal bankruptcy. And I think it's really important to talk about those too. And it will kind of quiet down the big fears and the big concerns because there are just a ton of benefits to it at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, the, the number one, and this makes a whole lot of sense, you get full forgiveness for almost all types of debt. So including credit cards, overdrafts, bank loans, taxes, Canada Revenue Agency debts, serve overpayments, student loans, payday loans, you know, the list just goes on and on. The almost that can't be included are, you know, 
basic things like child support, spousal support, things that no one want to compromise anyway. But just about every standard consumer debt can be included and discharged or eliminated as part of a personal bankruptcy proceeding. Uh, another benefit to bankruptcy is it removes those unaffordable debt repayments from your monthly budget. So if there's a bunch of creditors that all want their minimum payments and will call and scream like crazy if they don't get it, when you file into bankruptcy, you do have to make a payment to the trustee, but typically it's far less than what you would have been required to pay to service all of the various debts that you're dealing with. And a little bit counterintuitive because some people think if you go into bankruptcy, your assets get seized, but the vast majority of people keep every single asset they have. Uh, but bankruptcy actually puts you in a better position to protect your assets because if you're in a bankruptcy, you can no longer be sued. Nobody can take legal action against you uh, and you get the protection of provincial exemptions that protect everything from your pension, your RRSPs, your furniture, your vehicle, even your home equity. So very counterintuitive, but sometimes the best way to protect some assets is actually to go through a, a bankruptcy proceeding to put all the creditors at bay and you can still emerge depending on the asset uh, with that asset still in your possession. And getting rid of that stress must be just an absolute gift. That's the life-changing part of it. So obviously the financial is one thing, but what's so incredibly gratifying to me and I know to my colleagues as well is just seeing the transformation from the first meeting, whether it's on video or in person these days, you know, you can just read the body language and any human seeing another human in pain, you can recognize those signs. And then we see them for a first counseling session a couple months in, or, you know, we have a periodic phone call to check in. Then when they're ready for discharge, it's my gosh, some people, it seems like they've, they've grown three or four inches in their height and their smile is that much wider their energy is just palpable to see you know the amount of people who have said you know we really thank you for giving us our life back and you know it, it's not us obviously they had to do the work we're just the you know the people that facilitate that but it's just a matter of giving people the information so they know this is an option and you know the outcome is just absolutely transformative uh, the phone number for Sands and Associates they have offices all over British Columbia is 1-800-661-3030 and the website is sands-trustee.com. So can we talk about how the actual process usually works for folks, how a bankruptcy process works for folks, Blair? Yeah, sure. And relatively quickly. So for most people, bankruptcy, it's a nine month process. So from the time you sign the documents to when all that debt is left behind and you're moving forward, that can be as little as nine months. The major steps that you're going to complete is you're going to have an initial consultation uh, with a licensed insolvency trustee. They're going to work with you to gather all of your financial information and then prepare the official bankruptcy documents for you to sign. Um, all that can happen in the matter of a few days, or it can be as long as the person needs to get their information and feel comfortable about the decision. As soon as those documents are signed, they're filed with the government immediately. And from that moment, you have protection from your creditors and the nine month term of bankruptcy is then underway. Uh, during those nine months, instead of paying your debts, you have some duties to the trustee instead. So three major things that you have to do, and none of them are hugely difficult, but they are a little bit of work on a monthly basis. Um, so the first one is you have to attend two private financial counseling sessions. So they're one-on-one -on -one sessions, typically done either on video or on our offices, talking about your financial goals, um, your plans for the future, how to budget, how to save money, really giving you some good grounding on how you can rebuild your credit after all of this. You have to attend both of those to finish the bankruptcy and people are only too happy to attend counseling and really get some good insights. So that's a really good part of the process. Uh, probably the most um, detailed work that you have to do is you have to keep a monthly budget for every month that you're in bankruptcy. So there's a one page form for the nine months of bankruptcy for every month. You're going to start at the top, talk about your income 
and they're going to write down where you spent your money each month with the whole idea that you're living within your means. You're no longer able to rely on credit. So it's a good practice to keep the household budget and track your spending. Uh, the last of the three things um, is you just have to make some payments to the trustee. So if someone is low income, which is most of the situations we deal with these days, uh, the bankruptcy runs for nine months and their payments are usually in the range of two to $300 per month. Uh, and the main, the final things with the bankruptcy, you generally do just without even thinking about it. You know, we'll ask you for your tax information. You know, you send that through to us so we can file the taxes for the year of the bankruptcy. But otherwise, it's relatively straightforward. You do the counseling, you do the budgets, you make sure money's in the account each month for the bankruptcy fee. And at the end of nine months, you could be achieving a fresh financial start. Now, and I, we've just got about a minute left in this segment. Um, what, what about the, uh, the impact that bankruptcy has on credit, ha- credit history? Yeah, so bankruptcy is not permanently on your credit report, but it is on there for six years after you finish the bankruptcy. So it doesn't mean you're untouchable for those six years, but it does mean you're going to want to do some work to rebuild. We talk to you in the counseling sessions exactly how to rebuild your credit the right way. And a reasonable calendar is as little as two to three years. If you've rebuilt your credit the right way, you could be qualifying for a mortgage at the same rates as anybody who had never went bankrupt before. Car loans are often even sooner than that. Even an unsecured credit card, I have people offered that very shortly after a bankruptcy is complete. So you will recover. It's going to fall off the bureau completely after six years, but really two to three years is a more reasonable calendar to when you can have even superior credit history or credit report than when you started. And if you want to learn more about your options to deal with debt and get that debt-free plan that's right for you, sans-trustee.com is the website. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.